Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Rachel Thomas. Today would have been our wonderful boss, John D. Barrow's 70th birthday. And to celebrate him and his work, we're revisiting an interview in this podcast where we asked one of his favourite questions. Are the constants of nature really constant? There's some numbers you think you can rely on. These constants of nature, such as the speed of light and the gravitational constant g, seem to be fundamental physical quantities that should be the same everywhere and unchanging over time. But are they? We recorded this interview with John back in 2009, when we were celebrating the International Year of Astronomy by letting our readers vote on which questions they most wanted to ask about the universe. This question was one of the winners, and as you'll see, John was definitely the right person to ask. So the winning question of our most recent poll was, are the constants of nature really constant? Uh, And we're here to talk to John Barrow about that. Well, first of all, you have to decide what the constants are or what they should be. So if you pick the wrong things and believe that they're the constants, the fact that you find them to vary later on wouldn't tell you anything except that you'd made the wrong choice. So physicists have had a long time to try to decide both observationally and then on the basis of their theories what things in nature they regard as absolutely unchanging uh, fundamental features of the universe. And these are not perhaps some of the things that you might have thought. Uh, We're used to all sorts of constants and standards uh, in everyday life Uh, So the quality of a rubber tyre or um, the standard wire gauge that tells you something like the thickness of a piece of wire. Uh, There are many of these sorts of standards in in ordinary life and industrial life. And most of them grew up out of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, when there was a huge increase in the manufacturing of everything. Well, at that time, there was a famous Irish physicist called George Johnson Stoney, who was the vice president of the Irish Academy, and uh, well known for all sorts of things, in particular predicting the existence of the electron. And he gave the name uh, to that particle, the electron, before it was discovered. And Stoney was asked to chair a little panel at the British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting uh, that year to try and decide on a system of units, to try to handle all these different quantities that were springing up. And he surprised everyone by coming up with a system which he called natural units. So he pointed out that we shouldn't worry about things like inches and metres and seconds, all these units of convenience. But there were quantities in the universe so-called constants of nature, like the gravitation constant of Newton, uh, the speed of light, and of course his own constant had introduced the charge on the electron. And that if you juggled these around in the right way, you could make quantities that had units of length, uh, of mass and of time. And these he called natural or fundamental units. So they didn't depend on anything about human choices. They were defined really by the nature of electromagnetism, of light and of gravity. 
And today we use similar units in physics and cosmology called Planck units. They're just very slightly different from uh, Stoney's, but it's essentially exactly the same idea. So the constants of nature define what the universe is like in a way which we could communicate to people on the other side of the universe. So if we wanted to tell people how tall we were uh, and we were sending a message to another galaxy, we could do that by using constants of nature. We could tell them to carry out various measurements which would tell them certain quantities. And it wouldn't matter what units they used to measure length or time if they instead used these fundamental units made out of constants of nature we could agree on what we were talking about. What one holds has to worry about today if you're then trying to decide were those quantities like the speed of light, the charge on the electron, Planck's constant, the mass of the electron, are these really constant? Well, all those quantities have got units, so the speed of light's got units, uh, length per time, so metres per second, centimetres per second, mass of the electron's got units of grams and so forth. So if you start talking about whether those quantities change in time or really constant, you have to worry what are you measuring the changes relative to, um, because if all speeds are changing, uh, all lengths are changing and all times are changing, then it might be rather hard for you to decide whether the speed of light is changing. And so in practice it's, it's a good idea to focus attention upon what physicists call dimensionless quant constants. So quantities that don't have any units. So it doesn't matter what units you use to work them out. So instead of the mass of the electron, you would look at the ratio of the mass of the electron to the mass of the proton. So that's just a number. So it's, uh, it's about 1 over 1840, something like that. Uh, and similarly in electricity and magnetism, there's something called the fine structure constant, which uh, is equal to the square of the charge in the electron divided by Planck's constant times the speed of light multiplied by 2 pi. So that's roughly equal to 1 over 137. Now, uh, one of the great paradoxes of uh, physics and theoretical physics is that on the experimental side, we measure those constants of nature more accurately than we measure anything. So there's great emphasis on trying to determine them to as many decimal places as you can. Uh, and so... Uh, we see there tremendous precision in experimental determination. But yet nobody has ever managed to predict or explain the values of any of the constants of nature. So we have no idea uh, why they have the exact values they do. So some people always hope that there would come along a great theory of everything which would uniquely and completely specify all these numbers and there just wouldn't be any other values that they could have uh, in order that everything fitted together. And I think most people expected that to be the case up till, you know, the 1980s. Certainly Einstein expected that that would be the case, and he worked quite hard to try to develop such a theory. But developments in string theory have shown really this 
doesn't seem to be likely at all that uh, many of these numbers uh, are allowed to take huge numbers of different possible values uh, and everything will still fit together completely logically and consistently. When you say things fit together, you mean that there could be a universe which satisfies the same rules that our universe same satisfies? Rules, the same with different strengths of the forces. Right. Yeah. So in string theory, for example, um, you, you have solutions of the theory, it appears, where um, there would only be a force of gravity, or there would only be gravity and electromagnetism, but no radioactivity, no nuclear forces. Um, or you might uh, have the, those forces, but with rather different strengths. Uh, so far it seems that there are about 10 to the power uh, 500 different possibilities. Uh, so we don't yet fully understand where they really all are possibilities, or they're equally likely in some sense. Well, the other odd thing about string theory was that it seems to require the universe to have many more dimensions than uh, the three we walk around in. And the only way we can reconcile that prediction with the fact that we do just walk around in three dimensions is if the other dimensions are fantastically small. Uh, but there's an awkward consequence for constants of physics because if the universe really does have ten dimensions, seven of them really tiny and we can't see, then the real constants of nature are all defined in ten dimensions. And the things that we're measuring in our laboratory and talking about, they're just well, three-dimensional shadows of the real constants. And there's no reason why they should be constant. They're not truly fundamental. And if these other dimensions in the universe were to wobble very slightly or just grow a little bit bigger, we would notice that because our three-dimensional constants would change at the same rate. So the point of this is that all of a sudden, some years ago, there was some motivation for studying whether the constants might be varying. And back in about 1998-1999, John Webb who was visiting me in Sussex from Australia, and I decided that we would uh, initiate an observational program in astronomy to try to test whether some of our constants were varying very slowly. Now, there were two other reasons for doing this. Um, there were new detectors on the best telescopes in the world, like the Keck um, and uh, the Anglo-Australian Telescope and the telescopes in La Palma. Canary Islands. And we noticed that the detection capability of the detectors on those telescopes was better than in any laboratory experiment. So using astronomy, we could test whether constants are really constant better than any laboratory experiment. So this is rather surprising. Uh, and in fact, at the beginning, we could do better by at least a factor of 100, by a huge, huge factor. So over many years, what uh, we did with other collaborators was to look at the spectra of light from distant quasars. You pick quasars because they're the brightest objects that we see in the distant universe. They're all over the sky, so you can see them very, very far away. And far away means that 
the light we now see from them has spent many billions of years reaching us. So when we receive that light and analyse it, we're getting a snapshot of what the universe was like uh, many billions of years ago. And therefore, if one does the right things with the light, a snapshot of what the laws of physics and the constants of physics were like, you know, maybe 10 billion years ago or more. So we developed a, a new way of analysing uh, the spectra of light coming from quasars. So the light would pass through clouds of dust quite near to the quasar, and some of the spectral lines emitted by some of the atomic species would get absorbed, and you would get a feature in the spectrum that would show that happening. And we then devised a method in which one could compare uh, the distance between different spectral lines in the vicinity of the quasar and compare it with what we saw here in the laboratory. And this enabled us to test whether certain constants of nature were the same uh, in the vicinity of the quasar to what they were here in the laboratory. And this was done over the years for hundreds of objects, nearly a thousand spectral lines. So it's a very, very large data set. And the data was taken by different observers on different telescopes, so this uh, and sort of mingled together, so you avoid a bias being created by some technique or some instrument. John and his colleagues were particularly interested in the fine structure constant, which measures the strength of electromagnetic radiation. Their experiment did indeed pick up a tiny increase of about six parts in a million over 13 billion years, a change that is too small to be detected in a lab experiment. As a result, John and his colleagues thought about what a universe with a slowly changing fine structure constant would look like and found that there were some consequences for gravity. This feature of gravity that things accelerate at the same rate in a vacuum irrespective of their composition is called the weak equivalence principle by physicists. And the interesting thing is that if the fine structure constant is changing very slowly, then the weak equivalence principle won't quite be true. So there will be a tiny difference in the way uh, an object made out of uh, iron uh, will fall in a vacuum compared with one that was made out of carbon or some other material. And the reason is, is because the changes in the fine structure constant are created in effect by a new force field in nature which grabs hold of electric charges and affects them. And Different materials are made of different elements that have different numbers of protons in their nuclei, so there are different numbers of electric charges. So this field grabs onto iron uh, more strongly than it grabs onto carbon and produces a tiny difference in how things will fall. Now, the predicted difference, so the difference between the acceleration of two different materials uh, divided by the sum of their accelerations, so again the relative difference, uh, is predicted to be one part in 10 to the 13. Okay, uh, so that's the predicted difference if the observed apparent variation of the fine structure constant really is a variation. So that sounds incredibly small, but the interesting thing is the current experimental limits are only 10 times weaker. So we know from 
experiments on Earth that this fractional difference in acceleration has to be less than one part in 10 to the 12. So one in 1,000 billion. But we can't do much better on Earth because we just run into you know, fundamental limits of experimentation. To get that increased accuracy that we would need to test that prediction, we need to have an experiment in space. And such experiments uh, are planned. There are, there are uh, uh, several proposals, and there's one project which has been seeking funding for a long time. And the accuracy that it believes that it can get is down to about one part in 10 to the 16. So you would easily uh, cover this type of signal that's predicted. So it's an interesting example of how uh, a variation of one constant that's just about electricity and magnetism ends up having a consequence for gravity that you might not have suspected. So given that your experiment um, that you did over a number of years picked up what is possibly a very small variation in the fine structure constant, do you believe the constants of nature are really constant or do you believe that, they're, that, they, that they are changing? Well, it's hard to say. I, uh, we've got a huge data set which had been gathered in the last two years, which is still being reduced, and maybe by the end of this year there'll be, there'll be more data. Um, and there have been other observers who've been very interested in another constant, which it's easier to get evidence about, and that's this electron-proton mass ratio. So people are closing in you know, on being able to see whether this is varying at the same level as, uh, as the other constant. So I would not be surprised, for example, if the gravitation constant of Newton turned out to be varying very, very slowly. So if we don't know today definitively whether the constants of nature are constant, um, do you think you'll find out the answer to that question in, a, in, in your lifetime? I think with regard... I mean, you could never know... Uh, at some level, you know, that there always could be a variation that's ten times smaller than the most accurate experiment you could have. But these variations that uh, we seem to have been seeing in quasars, uh, this will be cleared up in a few years. So um, we will know from new laboratory clock experiments, new astronomical detectors, whether these results are real or whether there's something else going on that sort of mimics the effect of a variation. And uh, the reporting publishing of those results in Fizzrav Letters over the years you know, has interested lots and lots of observers and experimentalists in focusing in on this problem. So that problem will be solved. Um, we will know whether those observations are seeing varying fine structure constant or some unusual turbulence or something yeah. uh, in the objects. But something like variation of the gravitation constant, um, that's much more difficult. Uh, if you look at the back of your physics textbook, um, at the values of constants of nature, uh, you'll see lots of them, like charge the electron, fine structure constant, are determined to huge numbers of decimal places. There's one exception which sticks out like a sore thumb, and that's the gravitation constant. 
that's very poorly determined because gravity is so weak on the scale of the laboratory you can't carry out an experiment to determine the strength of gravity in the laboratory very easily at all because all the other forces of electricity and magnetism and adhesion and so on are 10 to the 40 times stronger so you just can't isolate gravity to measure it and so this extraordinary weakness in our determination of what the value of the gravitational constant is sort of carries over that we are very poor at determining whether it's changing or not we don't even know on the scale distance scale of a hundredth of a millimeter and below whether the inverse square law of gravity is true or whether it's an inverse fourth power because we we just can't isolate the force of gravity on that tiny scale from other forces so you can see from the fact that the fly can walk around on the ceiling above us mm. you know that gravity is much much weaker than those adhesion forces um, and you can hold quite a heavy mass with a magnet here and stop it falling to the ground so gravity is very difficult to test and check But as I said at the beginning, we don't have any theoretical ideas about why these constants have the values that they do. So we're missing an incredibly important ingredient in the whole story. And I suspect it's only when we know why they have the sorts of values that they do, or how, what part of physics, as it were, endows them with these values, or whether the values are random, which for some of the constants is probably very likely. Until that happens, it would be very hard to say whether you should expect them to change or not. That was John D. Barrow talking to us in 2009. You can find out more about this aspect of John's work in the PLUS article Are the Constants of Nature Really Constant? on plus.maths.org. And you can find out more about some of John's other work and his many, many interests in his many plus articles. Just search for John D. Barrow. Happy birthday, John, and thanks for all the brilliant stories. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this one. Bye-bye for now.